Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Well, the four times indicted Republican frontrunner is continuing to echo the language of Adolf Hitler and brag about compliments from Vladimir Putin. So that's pretty much where we are right now. Donald Trump said all of that in New Hampshire just over the weekend, where Governor Chris Sununu just endorsed Nikki Haley. The governor is going to join me to talk about all of that later in the show. We're also going to dig into some pretty wild new reporting about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and concerns that he would resign over his paycheck. But we do want to start tonight with what I hope will be a bit of a sober reminder of where the American electorate sits right now. It's important for everyone to hear. So this weekend, Trump once again echoed dictators, praised autocrats, repeated racist language, and was still cheered on by arenas packed with people who will cast their ballots in just over one month. During that speech on Saturday in New Hampshire, Trump once again said immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Now, that's clearly inflammatory. It's dehumanizing. It's white supremacist rhetoric. And as we mentioned on this show last time Trump said this, it very clearly echoes the words of Hitler. In the same speech, Trump also called Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban highly respected. Yes, that is the same Viktor Orban who dismantled democracy in Hungary and said he opposes a mixed-race society. Trump also noted that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is very nice, not words most people would use. Yes, the same Kim Jong-un who consolidated power by executing anyone that stood in his way. And Trump quoted Vladimir Putin, citing the time that Putin called the criminal cases into Trump politically motivated. Yes, the same Vladimir Putin who is under investigation for war crimes and a notorious oppressor of free speech and freedom of the press. For Donald Trump, that guy is once again being used as some sort of a validator in his campaign. And in his speech the very next day in Nevada, Trump kept at it, claiming migrants were invading the U.S. from prisons and mental institutions while re-upping his promise to conduct the, quote, largest deportation operation in American history. Now, if you're sitting at home right now thinking... That is terrible. That's horrible. That is obviously not consistent with the language or values we should expect from an American president. You are right. Believe me. I get it. I've worked for two of them. You might be saying to your friends and neighbors, this is not who we are. You might be hoping this rhetoric will sink his campaign because who on earth could actually support and endorse this? The answer is, unfortunately, more people than you might think. Day one dictator, because you know what? We're going to drill, baby, drill. Hey, how many people here? Now, normally, I know you probably wouldn't in America, but considering what they've done to this man, how many people here support day one dictator? Now, that's just a representation, but they're cheering in that video the day one dictator in New Hampshire, which holds the second crucial contest of this election cycle. So what about the first contest? Well, a woman, in, uh, a woman from Northwest Iowa told the Washington Post recently, quote, I love it. My kids call me a dictator. I thought my parents were dictators. He said he was only going to do it for a day. 
like if you had a home that was in disrepair and your parents came in and they were firm and they wanted to get it done. And when you got done, you had this beautiful home. How could you be mad? How could you be mad? But before the right wing accuses me of having a deplorables moment, which they probably will anyway, the audience for my point is actually not the people who agree with those comments or who are in those videos, but the ones who don't. Probably the overwhelming majority of you watching right now. Because as one of my first guests tonight writes, a durable coalition seems fully comfortable entrusting the White House to the guy who left behind a Capitol encircled with razor wire fence and 25,000 National Guard troops protecting the federal government from his own supporters. You can dismiss Trump voters all you want, but give them this. They're every bit as American as any idealized version of the place. If Trump wins in 2024, his detractors will have to reconcile what it means to share a country with so many citizens who keep watching Trump spiral deeper into his moral void and still conclude, yes, that's our guy. And this isn't just anecdotal. It's also registering in the polls. According to a new survey of likely Republican caucus goers in Iowa, 42% say they are more likely to support Trump for claiming immigrants are poisoning the blood of America. 43% are more likely to support him for saying his enemies needed to be rooted out like vermin. And 50% say they are more likely to vote for Trump because of his promise of sweeping raids, giant camps, and mass deportations of immigrants. More likely to vote for him. So again, echoing Hitler, backing up racist talk with racist plans, that's making large swaths of Iowa Republicans more likely to vote for him, according to these polls. And as we get closer to votes being cast, as the legal heat on him intensifies, Trump is clearly slipping in this vile, vile violent language more and more. A dictatorial speech there, an authoritarian truth social post here. He's kind of trying to normalize his extreme fascist rhetoric to condition his supporters to be okay with it. And it seems to be working. I mean, there is a market for the tyranny he's selling. At the end of the day, it'll be up to all of us, everyone, to decide if this is the kind of country we want to live in. But for lots of people right now, the answer seems to be yes. For lots of people, that's still their guy. And it's important to be aware of that as well. Joining me now is staff writer for The Atlantic, Mark Leibovich, who wrote that piece I just read from, along with ABC News chief White House correspondent, chief Washington correspondent, I'm sorry, Jonathan Carl. You've had lots of jobs. Jonathan is the author of the new book, Tired of Winning, we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, Donald Trump in the End of the Grand Old Party. So that was probably a little bit of a dark summary there for many people watching, but I think it's so important for people to understand kind of where the electorate is in this country. And I want to start with you, Mark, because as you wrote in your piece, as we can see in the polls and examples, I decided durable coalition. There's a durable coalition that seems to be uh, kind of rolling with Trump and what he's saying, what all of this racist rhetoric, this language that many people say, this is not who we are, which you talk about in your piece. What can Democrats actually do about that? Well, well first of all, they can accept it, that, that the durability of this is going to continue. I mean, there is a body of forgiveness, of tolerance, of celebration of this kind of rhetoric that now goes back seven to eight years. So, I mean, that is here for good. What I think was interesting about um, the, the intro that you just did was the, the quote from, I guess, the woman in Iowa. Mm. People call me a dictator. I yeah. mean, there is a glibness to this, mm -hmm. but there is also a celebration of strength. And I think it was your former colleague, Dan Pfeiffer, who said in his message, he has a, a really good message um, substack thing, but he basically said, look, when he says dictator, uses words like that, his supporters do like it. I mean, they it could, like that, they that like he's it, strong. It is strong. And also, he has primed these 
these supporters have said over a long time. He's definitely dialed up the rhetoric, but he also contrasts it with what he perceives Joe Biden to be and what voters have perceived Joe Biden to be next to this dictator, a, a weaker leader, someone who is older, someone who is more reserved. So it, it's actually getting a lot done for him. And, and yes, we can sort of roll our eyes or actually get really alarmed at this at our peril. But ultimately, this is actually, there, there seems to be a method to this. Yeah, the irony here is also that dictators are actually weak. I mean, they're trying to hold on to power yes. here, but that isn't necessarily breaking through. I think that's one of the points he made. So you have written a lot of books about the evolution of the Republican Party, including the one recently. Mark's going to hold it up for us. There you go. That's a friend there. Mm-hmm. You, one of the points you make is that it, Trump has gotten worse, that this has gotten worse. Talk to us about how we got here and what people may not be understanding from your reporting. There is something different about Trump this time. I think there are several things that are actually different about Trump. There's a lot of consistencies. Uh, That 2016 campaign was filled with some hateful rhetoric, was filled with some of the same stuff that you just talked about uh, in your open. But this entire campaign is built on something different, and it's built on this idea of retribution Mm -hmm. and revenge. And it wasn't even at the beginning of his 2024 campaign. When he announced in November of last year, it was a series of kind of warmed-over policy uh, proposals, kind of uh, -of run-of-the-mill, right-wing. There was talk of draining the swamp, a lot of the stuff that he talked about in 2016. But he got his mojo. He was down at that point, by the way, 20 points in the polls to a theoretical matchup with Ron DeSantis. That all faded away. He got his energy when he came up with this idea of, I am going to go out and I'm going to utterly root out and annihilate my enemies. The dictatorial, fascist imagery talk. That is where he got his, his, so I don't, I don't know. It's certainly the people responded, but he became stronger because that's who he is at this point. Which is such an, and there's this chicken and egg debate, right, which you yeah. sort of touched on there. It's like, is this actually who Trump is or he's feel like encouraged by the crowd so he's becoming more of that? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, the definition in some ways of like how, it, how a narcissistic leader kind of, you know, gets more power and derives more energy from. I, I would say I wouldn't underestimate the, the power of Trump um, basically, I hate to use this word, but triggering his enemy. The, mm-hmm. the, the people who, these people, like a lot of his supporters don't like, people on the coast, people in the media, um, the so-called elites, Trump really, really gets them going. They see that, and that is a signal that this is effective, this is someone we want to yeah, upset he, others. He annoys the people, the people that we don't like. The right like. people, or the um, wrong people. But, but, but look, look, at, look at his speech when he announced his campaign yeah. in, in November. Boring, dull, people were leaving early, didn't resonate. And then look at his speech in Waco, Texas. And he learned. You know, this is this is I have I can't do the warmed over. I have to be yep. more, I have to do retribution. I have to do harder line. I have to go more fascist in order to get my people excited. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's the entirety of the Republican electorate. I don't think that's a majority of the electorate in the United States, but it's certainly the, the, the majority of his fired up base. Well, let's talk about that, because there's also this question of like, is this a phase? Could somebody else take him on? And you sat down yesterday with Nikki Haley, who seems to me to be the most likely to kind of give him a run for his money, and Governor Sununu, who just yeah. endorsed him. Let's play a clip of that, and then we'll talk about this question after. When President Trump had the opportunity to stop it, when he had the opportunity to say it, the bully pulpit matters. People listen. He didn't. And I, and I hate that for the people that were there supporting him. I hate that for those of us that were watching it. 
But what I do know is he was the right president at the right time. So that is just, I mean, the, you should, do, the setup for that was you asked her about her comments yes. around January 6th. She, she made some really pointed comments just days after January 6th to Tim Alberta, now with The Atlantic, uh, about how she believed that his actions on that day were disgusting, that, that we, meaning Republicans, we made a mistake in following him. We should never have followed him. We must never let it happen again. I mean, it, she was slamming the door shut forever on Donald Trump. And then now she's back back to here. But I, I think that she's trying to, to walk a line. I mean, she wants to be clear that, that, that she's taking him on. She has to take him on. Right. He's the front To runner. some degree. To some degree, but, but, but she's got this fear of doing anything that will truly alienate, alienate his faithful supporters because she's going to need them. It's tricky. It's a, I I mean, I, I've I, said a lot of words in public. Yeah, it's a yeah. tricky tightrope to walk, what oh. she's trying to do in that interview. I mean, you kind of, it's a little bit of lip Oh, it's off. not a tightrope. It's a, it's a zigzag. I mean, she's, she has been all over the place, in, in fairness. I will say, she does, this is not an enviable position, though, because you're right. right. She does not, I mean, it, it is... You know, you could be Chris Christie, who has been extremely straight ahead and pretty consistent in his critiques of, of President Trump, and he's probably not going to win. I mean, yeah. he's, he's like well behind Nikki Haley in the polls. He has higher negatives than positives. Yeah, and electric. he gets booed at, at like, you know, you, you obviously you hear this, and that's sort of the campaign he's running, and I think it serves a important purpose. But I also think that, you know, if you actually want to win, you have to you know, be more delicate. But, but, but I think that actual leadership matters. And Trump has been able to build this up over time with an absolute dearth of leadership from, from Republicans uh, in taking him on. I mean, this goes way back, obviously. I mean, they, they, they were late in taking him on in 2016. Uh, I, I, I had written in Betrayal about a, a conversation I had with Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. on January 2nd. I ran into him on the National Mall. And I said, you know, January 2nd, 2021, I said, on January 6th, you're going to have a real opportunity. I mean, little did I realize. Right. But you're going to have a real opportunity. You can stand up on the floor of the House and tell all of these Republicans you know what? The election is over. It wasn't stolen. Joe Biden was elected. It's time to turn the page. Donald Trump is lying about this. And I said, you, this could be actually an historic moment because you are the leader of the House of Republicans that are leading this effort to overturn a Democratic election. And he kind of dismissed me and he said, look what's happened to others who have taken And we, I mean, we've all sat down with Liz Cheney, all read her book. I mean, this is one of the core points she makes in her book. I mean, there's many points in there, but about these enablers and people, Kevin McCarthy is one of them, Mike Johnson is, an, is another one, who didn't kind of meet the moment of leadership. Yes, but although I think it's important to say that Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson, I mean, they have constitutional roles. I mean, mm. this is like very normal. Certifying the Electoral College is, is right. as derogor as It's normally a boring do. day. Yes. I mean, yes. you know, we're talking about Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and, and others are running against him. So there is a very different context here. But the bare minimum of like, you know, Mike Pence is held up as like this great hero for, for doing, again, an extremely... You know, for, kind of, for not for, ripping for, up the Constitution. Not, yes. So, and he did, and, and to his credit, he did his job on that day. But the um, the standards have gotten very, very low. And, and, and I also I also think that look, he's way ahead in all the polls: mm. New Hampshire, Iowa, national. I I don't think that he's way ahead in the polls because he's using fascist rhetoric. I don't think that. I, I think that's then why. Why, why people, is he ahead? I, I think that a lot of it is that people don't actually realize what he is all about right now. And I think there's a kind of uh, you know, there's a basic partisanship and people have discontent with Biden. They're unhappy with Biden. And he's the he's the voice. 
Yeah. He's the loud voice and he's the contrast. Jonathan Carl, Mark Levovich. I could talk to you for the whole hour. We'll do Let's that another time. Yeah. You know Thank Let's you go. both so Send much. Everyone else home. I, I, I appreciate it. Excellent. Coming up, brand new reporting that Clarence Thomas once complained he'd retire if he didn't start making more money. Eventually, gifts from billionaires started rolling in. My friends George Conway and Claire McCaskill join me on that. And later, Nikki Haley is definitely gaining some traction in New Hampshire. We were just talking about that. But could a win there actually be possible? Could it shake up the Republican race? New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu seems to think so. He just endorsed her and he joins me live in just a few minutes. We're just getting started this out. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. And we will be right back after a quick break. point, it is pretty well established that conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has some rich buddies. A number of right-wing benefactors who do things like send Thomas and his wife on free luxury vacations or provide him a loan of hundreds of thousands of dollars for a high-end RV and then forgive the loan or pay his nephew's tuition or buy his mom's house and let her live there rent-free. I mean, wouldn't we all be so lucky to have friends like that? We also know that Thomas has a history of not reporting those gifts on disclosure forms, raising a whole host of thorny ethical issues that just don't really pass the smell test. But one open question has always been how and why these wealthy conservatives decided to get together and start trying to curry favor with one of the nine most powerful jurists in the country. Well, today, ProPublica may have given us an answer. Back in the year 2000, Justice Thomas was very loudly telling everyone who would listen, including a sitting Republican congressman, that he was dissatisfied with his salary at the time. Apparently, about $174,000 a year for serving in a lifetime appointment in the highest court in the land just wasn't enough to fund his lifestyle. In fact, he was so dissatisfied with his financial situation, he told conservative confidants he was re thinking about retiring, and soon. Now, keep in mind, this was the year 2000. Bill Clinton was president, who would have been able to choose Thomas's replacement. And while ProPublica found no direct evidence that those complaints led directly to his new rich friends opening their pockets, the outlet reports, quote, around 2000, chatter that Thomas was dissatisfied about money circulated through conservative legal circles and on Capitol Hill. During his second decade on the court, Thomas's financial situation appears to have markedly improved. In 2003, he received the first payments of a $1.5 million advance for his memoir, a record-breaking sum for justices at the time. Thomas also received dozens of expensive gifts throughout the 2000s, sometimes coming from people he'd met only shortly before. It's also interesting to note that the justices' views seem to have, shall we say, evolved. 
thanks probably in part to the generosity of these rich conservatives. In 2019, he seemed just fine with how much money he was making, even though salaries for Supreme Court justices weren't keeping up with inflation. Right now, what is the compensation of a justice of the Supreme Court? Oh, goodness, I think it's plenty. <laughs> this is fine. I have no, my wife and I are doing fine. We don't, we don't live extravagantly, but we are fine. We don't live extravagantly, but we are doing fine. Well, ProPublica reports that just a few weeks after Thomas made those comments, which are endearing without the context, he boarded billionaire Harlan Crow's private jet to head to Indonesia for an island cruise on his yacht. I guess he was doing fine after all. And look, it bears repeating that Clarence Thomas is still on the court. He's still sitting in judgment on some of the most important legal cases of our time with enormous political ramifications, including potentially whether or not Donald Trump will face trial for trying to overturn an election. Joining me now, conservative, I think you consider yourself still that, attorney George Conway and former U.S. Senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill. Claire is also the host of the terrific MSNBC podcast that's so topical right now, How to Win in 2024. So, George, here's what I can't get over. Um, even if you're another conservative justice, you're watching all this happen with Clarence Thomas. It's embarrassing. Right. It makes the court look bad. Correct. Is there anything they can do? No, there's nothing really they, they can do. They have no authority over each other. Even the chief justice does not have authority over individual justices and their decisions to recuse or their decisions to disclose things or their decisions to accept or reject. They yes. did do the toothless ethical thing, right. which yeah. they and, could have done better there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the, the Supreme Court can itself enforce a solution to this. I think the solution goes much, much beyond uh, anything the Supreme Court can do. I mean, I think that su Supreme Court justices and judges generally, state and federal, are underpaid. I mean, if you look at, the, you know, $174,000 is a lot of money, but the fact of the matter is 29-year-old uh, lawyers who, who clerk on the court and then go to New York law firms or even Washington law firms make more money than well, that. Well, they, they also get an appointment to the Supreme Court and are the highest right, judges right. in the and, land. And that's exactly right, because... You, when you decide to take a job, a lifetime appointment like that, you are deciding to make that sacrifice. And yeah. if you can no longer make that sacrifice, and I know many federal judges um, have done this, they will they resign and they go and they take the corner cushy office at at, at um, um, Joe and Smith and on Wall Street or wherever. And and it's you you have to you have make to, you're making the sacrifice or you don't. Claire, let me ask you, because there's obviously growing skepticism about the court for a range of reasons, uh, ethical reasons, obviously outrage over the Dobbs decision by not just Democrats, but independents and others. But one of the points that Liz Cheney made in her book, I'm always looking for a little bright slide here, but I want to see what you think, is that when it came to issuing subpoenas for Trump documents, the conservative Supreme Court, three Trump nominees, ruled the right way. So does that give you hope as it relates to where they will land on, say, the issue of presidential immunity, which is pretty important uh, around the case of the January 6th case? Well, um, I have read what a really smart lawyer by the name of George Conway has said. And um, he has said repeatedly that he thinks most of these issues that are being presented are slam dunks for the government mm. in terms of the arguments that Trump is making. I think the more interesting question, Jen, is what's going to happen with the subpoenas that the Senate Judiciary Committee has issued around the ethics on the Supreme Court? And how is that going to end up? Because the way this process works 
is they have now authorized subpoenas of Leonard Leo and Harlan Crow. Um, some would say Leonard Leo is the architect of the Dobbs decision. He certainly was responsible for the list of judges that Trump touted when he was running for president, that this is where the Supreme Court justices would come from. By the way, all of them were smart people who knew they were taking a lifetime appointment at a cut in salary. So I'm not going to feel sorry for Clarence Thomas. So if these subpoenas <laughs> are approved... If these subpoenas are approved by the Senate, then it's a civil contempt and it goes through the courts. And guess where it ends up? At the Supreme Court. So um, this this will be interesting to see. This is a real question on checks and balances. Does the U.S. Senate have the right to ask questions about the ethics, about the conduct of the Supreme Court, which it appropriates funds for? And that is a question that has not been decided in our country. And it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. But it's a sticky wicket. Very. Lots of tests on our system. Okay, Claire just gave you a well-deserved compliment there. So I what do you make of the question she just posed? Um, I, well, I think that um, to some, I mean, I think there are limits to what the what how, what Congress can do to investigate Supreme Court justices. I don't think they want to get into the internal deliberations of the court. But I do think that the financial issues are, if they're, if they're done for, in, if they're investigated in good faith, um, are, are significant and, and should be investigated. For I, I'll tell you one thing. It's funny to remember when you see what's happening today and all the different things that and amounts of the amounts of the money and the gifts, the forgiving of the of the loan for the RV. And you see all of that from so many different people. Mm. To You contrast what happened in 19, I guess, 69 or 70 with Justice Abe Fortas, who was up for chief justice. Um, and and, and the, the Nixon administration basically threatened to prosecute him because he was taking $20,000 from a benefactor in New York. Yeah, this is a little it, bit more than like, $20,000. Yeah, no, it's like, <laughs> I mean, poor, I mean, Abe Fortas must be just rolling in his grave about yeah. this. But to go back to the point about um, the, the how it affects the decisions of the court, I, I have to, I, I think it's important to take these ethics issues and separate them out from ideology and whether these are conservative judges or liberal judges. And, and I think that, you know, it, 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 they're going to decide the, these aren't matters that affect how the judges decide cases, but it affects respect for the court, which is very, very important. Yeah, that is an important point. And, and it's a differentiate, which is hard because it right. feels all bad. Right. So, Claire, in the limited time we have left, I want to ask you, I mean, one of the things that's obviously outraged people across the country in the last couple of years is the Dobbs decision. But also this ethical stuff is also outrageous. As people, Democrats and others, think about how to run, how to incorporate the court into political campaigns, is it just Dobbs? Should they be talking about the ethical stuff? What, what's your legal and political take on that? I think the ethical stuff is an undercurrent of the Dobbs decision. Um, and it really starts with Merrick Garland. It starts with a unbelievable thing that occurred when Mitch McConnell said, I'm going to ignore the Constitution and pretend like a sitting president didn't nominate someone to the Supreme Court. And from there, it was off to the races. And now with all the ethical stuff that's piled on. Um, but, but frankly, if they were perfect ethically, um, the Dobbs decision would still be an earthquake politically, and it will be an earthquake. And anybody who thinks it's going away hasn't met very many women. Dobbs decision or ethical? It sounds like you're going to say Dobbs decision is better for people to run run on next year. I, I, I think the Dobbs decision is better for people to run on. I don't think people are going to understand the ethics issue, the details of the ethics issue at, at all. 
Yeah, they, they'll just, Clarence Thomas will be on his yachts and we'll be focused on he's yeah, taking away women's rights. It's probably a more powerful argument to make. George Conway, Claire McCaskill, thank you both as always for your overlap of legal and political knowledge. I uh, appreciate you both being here. And up next, I'll explain what history tells us about how the New Hampshire primary could unfold in January as Nikki Haley gains some ground on Donald Trump. And I'll talk one-on-one -on -one with the state's Republican governor, Chris Sununu, who just endorsed. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. That's all coming up. We'll be right back. Believe it or not, the start of the Republican primaries are less than a month away. And while it may bend the mind, at this moment, Donald Trump is still far and away the favorite. A new national poll out yesterday shows him at 69% among Republican primary voters. That's a gain of seven points since just last month. But there are moments in Republican primary history when even untouchable national leads were shaken by surprising results in the early states that occurred before Super Tuesday. Back in 1980, George H.W. Bush won an unlikely victory in Iowa, shattering Ronald Reagan's perceived invincibility and making New Hampshire a critical must-win for the Reagan campaign. In 1996, frontrunner Bob Dole got some unexpected competition from Pat Buchanan, whose narrow victory in New Hampshire gave Dole a run for his money. And in 2000, John McCain's stunning upset in New Hampshire dispelled the widely held belief that George W. Bush would cruise to the nomination. Now, those surprises didn't translate into nominations, but they did make those races more competitive. So if anyone is going to emerge as a credible alternative to Donald Trump, they must win in at least one of these early states. And among those states, New Hampshire kind of feels like maybe the best place to do it or the best opportunity. That's because the voters there are notoriously independent, live free or die unpredictable. In fact, the polls often don't capture the tectonic shifts that can take place in the final days or hours before the vote. Not only that, but the state also represents the last opportunity, one of the last, for a Trump alternative to gain enough momentum to compete nationally in advance of Super Tuesday. And as of now, the candidate who seems best poised to break through in New Hampshire is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Take a look at this recent CBS YouGov poll. Haley is managing to inch into Donald Trump's substantial New Hampshire lead and lead the rest of the, leave the rest of the field behind. Now, to be clear, this would be a huge shakeup if she wins and if she propels from there. Because what Donald Trump is going for him more than any other candidate is that the people who vote for him tend to stick with him. For just a sample of that, look at the results of this month's Des Moines Register poll in Iowa that found that seven out of 10 people planning to vote for Trump already have made up their minds, and it's still several weeks away. They're firmly committed to him. Compare that to those supporting Trump's closest competitors. The vast majority of them say they can still be persuaded, persuaded to support someone else. So 
If something is going to shake this race up, who knows if someone is actually going to pose a real challenge to Trump's campaign, New Hampshire is probably where it's going to happen. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu just endorsed Nikki Haley, and he joins me next. When I first sat down with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu back in May, I asked him about the Republican frontrunner and his reprehensible rhetoric. This is what he told me at the time. Well, he's not going to be the nominee. I used to say that's a hypothetical, but uh, I think everyone's kind of reassessing, you know, even some of his supporters are saying, well, okay, this this can't be the message. Okay, but we are seven months later. Donald Trump's lead nationally is now extended to 69 percent in the newest Fox News poll. He's leading in Iowa. He's leading in New Hampshire. And the two candidates with the best chance to stop him are still behind him by double digits and have taken a while to forcefully criticize him. At this point, it's very difficult to see how the governor's prediction will be right. But if it is, then he knows better than anyone. It's going to take a surprising outcome in his home state next month. He's betting Nikki Haley will be the one to do it. And New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu joins me right now. Governor, there's a tape for everything. Uh, but before, before we get into the New Hampshire race, and of course that CBS poll, which I'm sure you want to talk about, I did want to ask you about something uh, we talked about at the start of the show, which is Donald Trump repeating that remark about immigrants poisoning the blood of our country. He did it at a rally this weekend in your state. What, what did you think when you heard him say that? Well, look, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised out of any, you know, craziness that comes out of Donald Trump. It was a disgusting comment, but he did it very strategically for two reasons. Number one, uh, he wants to really galvanize that base. He knows that that 40 point lead he had in New Hampshire, you know, a month ago is now down to 15 points. Nikki is surging. So that's getting him nervous and he wants to galvanize the base. Number two, he he also realizes that, you know, when it comes to the southern border, he didn't do what he told us he was going to do, right? So it's almost a distraction. He didn't secure the border. He didn't build the wall. He didn't get Mexico to pay for it. He didn't do any of that stuff. And so he's trying to re uh, almost distract his base from everything he didn't do. It's almost like he wants to convince people that he didn't, he wasn't president for four years, right? And that he's like well, the new guy, the new disruptor on the block. So he's doing anything he can to kind of, uh, you know, shake that, that narrative up and, and regalvanize a base that he's nervous about losing. Now, when, when he said that, we didn't exactly hear any boos. I, I certainly, you are more of an expert on the Republican electorate than I am. Do you think that means that's a widely embraced view in the base of your party? Or how do you take those, the response? Oh, no. No, the only... Yeah, well, the only people that show up to a Trump rally are the Trump zealots, right? So they're, they're there just to kind of reaffirm their own notion that Trump's the guy and that's it. So it's only the hardcore folks that are there. But to your own, the own numbers that you just showed a little bit ago, about 30 percent, about a third of his voters would still move from him. So if you looked at that CBS poll, and believe it or not, I think it's a little hot, but, you know, about 40, he was at about 44 percent. That means, you know, he could be down to 30, 35 percent. Right. If you're the former president and you could only get 35 percent of your base and you have somebody moving on your heels and you get the Chris Christie voters coming on board, the DeSantis voters coming on board. Well, now he's got a real problem because he's still well under 50 percent. And as it gets to be a one on one race, it's a reset button. And that's kind of what your opening was, how New Hampshire can be a reset button for a lot of these candidates. And I think it will be for Nikki. Well, let's talk about that poll, because in that poll, as you mentioned, Trump was at 44 percent. Haley is now at 29 percent. That was an increase. Ron DeSantis, as you said, 11 percent. Christie at 10 percent. I know that you said Chris Christie's your friend. You said he's going to make his own decision about staying in the race. His supporters, though, seem like 
they're the ones most likely to swing to Haley. She, she's not going to win with 29%. So walk right. us through how she's going to win this race. She's going to take supporters from him. She's going to take them from DeSantis. They have very different views from Trump. How's this going to happen? So you got to look at them individually with the Chris Christie voters. Their number one mission is to make sure Trump isn't the nominee, as was Chris's. And he did a good job of that. I think he ran a good race. But at the end of the day, Nikki's the path to making sure that Trump isn't the nominee. And I think the vast majority of his voters are going to come on board. I think Ron did a good job. I think a lot of his voters are going to come on board, even as we talked about the Trump voters. The number one reason why folks are with Trump right now, if you ask them, why are you supporting the president? They say, well, it's inevitable. He's going to win. So I guess we'll just support him. So you have to break through that 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 kind of emperor has no clothes uh, inevitability that he's trying to project. And when Nikki can do that, when you see her numbers at 29 percent, nobody's gotten to 29 percent in this race in nine months. And she's just keeping going to keep going up. So as that kind of inevitability uh, argument starts to dissipate, more of even Trump voters are going to come on board. And, and uh, like I said, when you have all the undeclared voters that can vote in New Hampshire, all the Republican based voters that can vote in New Hampshire, Trump knows he's got a problem here. Still seems like a road to go, but I know you're out there advocating. You know New Hampshire well. So you talked about Chris Christie. You just talked about him kind of in the past tense, like he ran a good race. He's still in the race, as we all know. He had some this to say about Nikki Haley. I want to play it and talk to you about it on the other side. Look, Jake, the other problem with this is the Republicans who are saying this is OK. Um, almost 100 members of Congress who have endorsed him. Nikki Haley who this week said he is fit to be president. You're telling me that someone who says that uh, immigrants are poisoning the blood of this country, someone who, who, who says Vladimir Putin is a character witness, is fit to be president of the United States, was the right president at the right time? Nikki Haley should be ashamed of herself. So, I mean, he kind of stood by her at the debate. A couple days later, he attacked her. Are you worried at all that these are going to hurt him? And I mean, you're friends with him. Are you thinking about calling him up and saying, knock it off? This isn't helpful? No. No, 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 no. Chris, look, Chris is running his own race. He knows what he's doing. No, that's fine. I, I think, you know, he'll have to make his own conclusions. I think as a lot of his voters kind of, at least in New Hampshire, are going to tend towards Nikki. You know, Nikki's, uh, she's, when she's out on the town halls, she's talking about herself, her incredible resume. No one can match her resume, especially on the international stuff, the turnaround stuff she did in South Carolina. So it's not just fluff. It's, it's really based on results, which people like. Um, she kind of has that libertarian, uh, lowercase l libertarian in it, where she says, look, let's let the state make more decisions. A lot of these things that currently happen in the federal government are going to transmit down to the state. So that that translates. So Chris will make his own decisions there. But there's no doubt that a lot of the the non-Trump voters are going to galvanize. A lot of the soft Trump voters are going to come on board. And again, it's it's just it's, it's five weeks to go. But this is when people start to make their decisions. The last big piece here is Nikki's the only candidate that has a very strong ground game. Over the past week, she ha- she's got the endorsement of AFP. They're putting folks on the ground, going to doors, talking one on one. And I get it. You know, you have folks that are are strong Trump supporters that tell Nikki she's too hard on the president and folks that really don't like former President Trump that say you got to be tougher on the president. She's right where she needs to be. She she calls him out for for the way she sees it uh, when she does the town hall. She doesn't ignore the Trump issue at all, but she's there to kind of sell herself and what she's going to bring. 
Let me ask you about that. I mean, I've said that she has been the best de- debater consistently. She can be very clear and concise on her positions here. She goes after him on the debt very consistently. But there are also moments where she has said things like, if he's found guilty, he's found guilty. If he's found innocent, he's found innocent. She even said she wasn't necessarily following all the legal cases, which I have a hard time believing. So but my question for you is, Shouldn't she be at this point? It's like all the stakes need to be on the table. Shouldn't she be going after him for his, the legal peril, all the baggage and all of the liability that he would have for the party in the general election? So I think there's a lot of folks that are out there doing that, and rightly so. She's focusing on herself, and it's working. I think the path she's taken with the former president, the the path she's taken in the debates, and how she's selling herself is clearly working better than anybody else's, especially here in New Hampshire. So I don't think we can knock her for that. Um, I I just think, again, if if you have a candidate and there's nothing really there, they just only want to focus on Trump, or they just only want to focus on rhetoric or extremism. That's not her. She doesn't, quote-unquote, scare people, whether it's where she is on the abortion issue, whether where she is on securing the border, where she is on the importance of, of the national debt. Look, the, the national debt isn't, isn't a critical issue just because. When you look at President Trump's record of overspending $7 trillion, you know what that means to all the Republican voters? That's inflation. He was part of the inflation problem. He's part of the reason that we are overspending everything. Biden threw gasoline on it and made it 10 times worse. But the fact is that in, in combined, Trump and Biden have been terrible with managing your money terrible with controlling inflation. And folks want a reckoning to that because I don't care what your political party is. It's crushing everybody. Well, that's not entirely factual. Trump's trillion trillion dollar tax cuts certainly did not help anyone. But before we let you go, I did want to ask you about Ron DeSantis, because he said if Trump loses in Iowa, he'll say the election was stolen. He hasn't said this about New Hampshire. He's not doing as well there, as we noted. But as the governor of the state, even a supporter of Nikki Haley, (laughs) What, but what are you were you prepared? What if what if Trump challenges the results in your state if Haley wins? What what are you going to do? Look, New Hampshire is known as having a, an election process that has more integrity than, than pretty much anywhere else. Right. There's no collusion. You, you need like it's, it's actually impossible to rig the election here. You need 250 town moderators to all collude together. We don't have we don't tire our systems into computers. They can't be manipulated by China and all that other conspiracy theory stuff. We we have paper ballots that you vote. We count the votes. We're done. And that's it. We keep it super simple, super accurate. That's why we have such high voter turnout, because people believe in the system. I don't care. Nobody believes or cares well, what Donald Trump says. Election systems have not been manipulated by China, just for clarity. But Trump could still challenge it. So I hope <laughs> that's not. not something you'll be dealing with. Governor Chris Sununu, thank you for your time tonight. And we'll be right back. Today marks a solemn anniversary for President Biden and his family. On this day in 1972, just before he was sworn in as the second youngest senator to ever take office, the rest of his immediate family was in a car that was hit by a semi-truck, killing his wife, Nelia, and their 16-month-old daughter, Naomi, while they were on their way to buy a Christmas tree. The crash also left his two sons, then just three and four years old, in critical condition. They were still recovering in the hospital weeks later when their dad insisted on being sworn in as senator at their bedside. And in his public remarks that day, Biden leveled with his constituents, telling them that for him, fatherhood would always be his top priority. I hope that I can be a good senator for you all. I make this one promise that uh, if in 
six months or so, there's a conflict between my being a good father and being a good senator, which I hope will not occur. I thought would, but I hope it won't. Uh, I promise you that I will, uh, will contact Governor-elect Tribbett as I had earlier and uh, tell him that uh, we can always get another senator, but they can't get another father. For years following that accident, Biden would travel to and from Washington four hours every day to be a part of his son's everyday lives. But as he later said of that dark period in his life, quote, I needed my children more than they needed me. That trauma, that immense, unthinkable trauma, is one of the things that makes Joe Biden who he is. It's what leads to his empathy and his humanity. But this is also a story about humanity transcending politics. In the aftermath of that accident, the very next day, in fact, Senator-elect Biden got a call from a political adversary who'd seen the tragic news in the paper that morning. It was President Richard Nixon. Hello, Mr. President. How are you? Senator, I know this is a, a very tragic day for you, but I wanted you to know that all of us here at the White House were thinking about you and praying for you and, uh, and also for your, uh, your uh, two children. And uh, shape that family. You can remember that she was there when you won a great victory, and uh, you enjoyed it together. And now I'm sure that uh, she'll be watching you from now on. Good luck to you. So while empathy is in short supply in today's political climate, it's a reminder to consider what others might be going through this holiday season. And maybe, despite your disagreements, it's a reminder of just how much it would mean to reach out. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.